uh, let's go before the Lord and, and pray and ask him to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we come as hungry people. Probably not hungry physically, but spiritually, we desperately need to hear from you. We need you to feed us. Father, we're thirsty. Father, there's brokenness and hurt in our lives. Father, there, is, there are pressures that we live with and live under. There is lack that we need to have filled in, deficiencies in our lives, and certainly there's sin and rebellion that needs to be squelched. And only you can do that. Only you can step into our lives and feed and provide and care and, and bring us under your good control as our shepherd. This morning, as we look at your word, would you do these things? Would you now allow us to encourage each other to receive your message, to be able to be prepared for the days that follow as we leave this place, to be able to take this message that is a part of our lives and take it to others around us. So bless it work against any distractions, against any things that would prevent us from hearing from you this morning, and that means me as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14. We are not going to identify the beast today. We're not going to look for numbers on foreheads or hands. We're going to look at this passage and see how it can be encouraging, how it is encouraging to God's people. We, our Monday morning men's Bible study just finished the book of Revelation. And so after about 10 months of, of wading through this, it's been a, a rich time, a perplexing time at times, and it's taken us a while, but we just finished a week ago, and that means we get to eat breakfast tomorrow. So if you're in that Bible study, make sure you join us for breakfast anyway. But I thought as an opportunity to preach, it'd be great just to, to look at this passage and, and, and see what God has for us here. I've enjoyed this personally and, and, and think it'll be a... a encouragement to you as well. 14 chapters, one, verses 1 through 5. As John writes, he says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. This passage in the book of Revelation itself is it's something to look at. It's a series of visions. And so we look at it and we will learn from it and find the encouragement that we need. It's not as much a puzzle to be kind of figured out as much as it's a picture. We will look at it. And John, as he uses the, the kind of language, symbolic language, and he says he looked and he saw and he listened and he heard something. And the questions we want to ask this morning is what did he see and what did he hear? And what does that mean to us? We're going to see that what he saw was a lamb standing and what he heard was song. A song sung by 144,000 who, who represent the redeemed of God. A song from them. 
What did he see? What did he hear? He heard a song. A number of years ago, as I was recounting, thinking of this story, I realized it was about 20 years ago. My wife and I, our family was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I was taking a trip with some students and staff to Vilnius, Lithuania over spring break, and we spent about 10 days there on a missions trip and engaging students over the gospel and getting to know them and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them, classrooms and different places. Well, we had an opportunity. A few of us did to go into a classroom as we were kind of meeting students. We'd been invited in as somehow Americans it was a pretty cool deal. And so we'd come from the United States and they, this uh, small class invited us in to come and to, to meet the students and kind of do a cultural exchange as it were. And there were four of us, if I remember right, and we were sitting in a small classroom really a, around a table with about six or eight students, if I can remember right, and the teacher that was there and we're talking about, you know, life in America and all those kinds of things. And they're asking about questions and we're asking about Lithuania and all those kinds of things. Well, anyway, a question came that we hadn't been expecting or were we prepared to, to do anything with. They asked us to sing a song. They asked us to sing a song, an English song, an American song, whatever. They asked us to sing a song and none of us were really terribly musical nor was it something we'd even remotely prepared to do. So we were like deer in headlights, you know, kind of singing. They go, what do we sing, you know, and ask us to sing a song. And I don't know who it was, but one of the four of us said, what should we sing? And somebody said, let's sing Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver. You know, and we're all kind of scrambling going, I don't know, sounds good. It's a song. So, so there we were, the four of us. We, we sang the song, Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver within this villainous classroom in Lithuania. It was bad. It was bad, right? Anyway, the saddest part, though, was when we walked out of the classroom. And you remember why we were there? Do you remember what, what we were doing there? We were there to talk about Christ, and they asked us to sing a song, and we realized when we walked out of the classroom, we went, what just happened? What, what, what did we do? They asked us to sing a song. We could have sung any song we wanted to. And we sang, Take Me Home Country Roads, something that anyone could have sung. Any American could have sung. We were there to talk about Christ. We could have sung a song about Jesus. But we didn't. We sang another song. We could have sung Amazing Grace. We could have sung How Great Thou Art. We could have sung Kumbaya. Who knows? We could have sung something else, but we didn't. And we walked down. We failed. Thankfully, I trust that God is bigger than our failures. See, we could have sung a song that only a Christian could sing. We could have sung a song that, was, that identified who we were and why we were there. But we didn't. And you see, music and songs can do that. It identifies us. And in this passage, as we look at it, we're going to find this group of people, this corporate group of people singing a song that identifies who they are. It's an expression of their identity. And it's a, it's a picture of what God has done in salvation throughout history. But it's a corporate song which tells us who they are. And if you will, in this picture and for us as well, the song of the gospel is one that tells us who we are and our lives are bound up with it and it with us. And whether we can sing or not, it's the thing that informs 
us and is the thing that drives us. And in this passage, as we look at this song, we want to hear and see the identity of these people as driven and understood through this song that they're singing that's there. I want to give just a little bit of an overview. It's very difficult to realize that how to jump right down in the middle of a book like this and give some sense or orientation to where we are in the book. But I mentioned before that the way you understand Revelation is by understanding what you see and what you hear and trying to make some sense of the visual images that are there. It's like a picture book. It's like a comic book, if you will, to look at and see what's happening and try to make sense of that. And here we're seeing and hearing, of course, is a piece of that. And so we look at this picture and we ask the question, what's happening throughout the book? It's a perspective that it gives the believers. It was written by John, given the vision given by Christ as he is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's there. God reveals the church is under great persecution, a period of time, great temptation to compromise. And this message comes to the church to encourage them to stand strong in the midst of these difficult times. And it's a message for the church, not just the latter part of the first century, but of every century, of every era, to hear and to learn how do we stand and follow after Christ, how we imitate him as our, as our leader, as the one who is the faithful witness. Can't give the whole view, but I want to quickly centralize the, the, the main point in the book is chapters 4 and 5. If you read through it, you'll see that 4 and 5 is his vision of the throne, th throne room. And the rest of the book, the rest of the visions are connected to that scene, chapters 4 and 5, where God is seen the one on the throne. And, and he is seen in chapter 4 as the one who is the creator and he's worshipped there. And there are the four living creatures and the elders around him and people in worship of God as creator. In chapter 5, the lamb comes on the scene and he's able to open the, the scroll and then lock the seals, if you will. And, and what he means there is he's able to accomplish the plan of God, the salvation plan of God. And so chapter 5, the one on the throne, God is worshipped as the redeemer, as the one who redeems people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so everything else and all the visions that flow out of those two chapters are, 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 are revealing the plan of God of judgment and salvation, of protecting his own and, and destroying his enemies. And so that's the, the rest of it. Six through eight is a picture of these seals that are, are broken. And as the seals are broken, judgments come. Nine through 11, there's trumpets that are blown. And the trumpets declare, again, more judgment upon God's enemies and what's going to come. And and how he is going to accomplish that. And then we come to our section 12 through 14. And in this section, we have a vivid picture of the enemies of God. We have a dragon and we have two beasts in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Hideous in their look. And the visual image of them helps us understand what they're like and what they're about. These are enemies of God. And then as we move on, there's more judgment. And at the end, we have a judgment of Babylon the seductress of the church. And then at the end, we have the beast, we have Satan, and all of those who follow him are cast into, the, into hell for eternity to be judged. And the very end, we have the new heavens and the new earth. We have, after destruction of the enemies of God, after his people have been preserved by his power, we're ushered into the new heavens and new earth. And so that's an overview in just a few minutes of the book tethered back to chapters 4 and 5. But as we look at chapters 4 to 12 and 12 through 14, like I mentioned, it's an introduction and a vivid description of the enemies of God. He, he tells us what's it look like, the enemies of God. And we have a dragon, he's got seven heads, and he's got ten horns, and he's got 
you know, diadems on each of those, and we have a, a hideous picture of this monster. It's a picture of one who seeks to destroy Christ, who seeks to destroy the church. Lest we think he's playing games, lest we think he's something to be played with or toyed with, he is not that. He's an enemy, and he's dangerous, and he is hideous in, in his look and in his actions. But then in chapter 13, there's two more um, offspring, two more images from the dragon that are called beasts, one from the sea and then one from rising out of the land. And these two are different ways that the dragon, the different ways that Satan will seek to tempt and be at work in destroying the people of God. And one is the coercive power. The beast is understood as one who uses the power of the institutions throughout all of history to strike against God's people. And then the second beast is understood, and we understand as the false prophet, is one who uses deception. That he steps in, he uses false doctrine, he takes lies that we are susceptible to, lies that every culture are susceptible to, lies that we like to believe. And he spins those in such a way to have a following of those who would identify with the beast and with him. And so this, that's the, the enemy that we see in chapter 12 and chapter 13 that's there. Coercive power of the beast, the deceptive power of the false prophet, all as weapons, all as agents of Satan himself in and threaded through our, our world, all time and all place and all history. That's what it looks like. And as, as John depicts them in two chapters, and then he makes a transition here in chapter 14, and the imagery shifts and changes. It changes from a dragon and, and beastly images to a lamb who's standing, and that's what we want to see. What is it that he sees? How does the image shift? How does it change? And it's easy to kind of get caught up in the, the number of the beast in the last chapter and the, this imagery that's there, and we could, we could read right over this and miss what's going on in the first part of chapter 14. He says, I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We could kind of move right over this, but we don't want to miss the importance of this. And certainly for his readers in that day who knew very well what the beast was like, they knew the power of the institutions around them that would force them and pressure them and tempt them to give up their faith and to move away from it or to compromise it in some way. They knew that very well, unless they think that the reality of Rome that the reality of the power of Rome was the most significant aspect of their reality, John says, no. There's something even more important. You're not, we don't want to just see the beast. We don't want to see the power of the institutions. We don't want to just see the deception that is real in the world around us. We need to see something else that is even more true because it is lasting. It's the one who at the very end of this book will still be standing. And we need to see Christ. And we see him standing here. And so lo he looks and he sees this one, the lamb who is standing on Mount Zion. And with him, these 144,000. As we look, these two questions. One is, what did he see and what does he hear? I'm going to pull from this. They understood the power of the beast, the, the, the readers of the day. And now we want to see what, the, what this offers us. And as we look at the passage, as we live in the context of a culture, that certainly there's a pressure somehow to compromise what we believe. There, it's easier just to kind of 
acclimate, to change, accommodate our beliefs, to try to fit, to be more in line with the culture, and to see this and find the encouragement that we need, that there's something that's true. This lamb, as we look at this passage and seek to endure in the midst of it, we want to ask two questions. First of all, we want to ask about this lamb who is standing. We want to look at him and understand and ask the question, where is the king? And secondly, we want to listen to the song that's being sung by the 144,000 and ask, does that song sound familiar to us? Do we know that song? So the first question is, where is the king? Well, he's standing on Mount Zion. Again, if we could read right over this and miss it, for them and certainly for the Jew, those who would read this, who would know their Old Testament, know that when the lamb, when the king is in Mount Zion, it means that things are as they should be. That what we have here when we see this is that there's a fulfillment of the prophecy that we have in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2. That when the king is in Zion, it means everything is as it should be. That people were safe, that people were secure. That their identity and their future was tied to the presence of the king being in Zion, in Jerusalem, and ruling from there. And so for Old Testament Israel to look and see the king there meant that God was ruling. It was a picture. It was symbolic. It was a picture. It's a pattern of the one who rules in heaven because there's one that's ruling on earth and that the king is there. And so... To look there for them would be to, to know and to find that God was ruling. If you'll turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, we find the prophecy of this king, this one standing on Mount Zion. Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It's interesting that the, the Psalms were written, they were compiled in a period of time when there was no king in Jerusalem. They were compiled and pulled together in a period of time. And yet, at the very beginning of this psalm, we have an incredible message, a credible picture that the psalmist gives us in these verses 4 through 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them, his opponents, those he will judge in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says that I have set my king. And when John sees this, it's a picture for him. It's a picture for us, for those who wonder if indeed God is in control, if his king is really in Zion, is really control is there. And John says, yes. And yet the imagery of this passage of Revelation 14 is different. It's shifted just a bit, right? It's not... It doesn't tell us it's a king, it shows us a lamb. And indeed, the, the picture throughout Revelation is the lamb who had been slain. It's one who is the king who himself had given his own life to rescue his people, to defeat his enemies, and to, to be able to rescue his own people. So it's a lamb who was slain and by his blood, having ransomed people from all nations, and he stands victorious here. It's a visual fulfillment of Psalm 2.6. It's there. It's a picture of the king. It's, rain, it's raining. When the king is in his rightful place, we can rest. When the king is in his rightful place, we can rest. When we see him there. For the readers of the day, they would wonder, indeed, the things that's taken place in their lives, the persecution. They would go, is the king really in his rightful place? And John says, yes. John says, yes, he is. In this vision, he is standing as a lamb on Mount Zion. He is ruling. He is, control, he is in control of all that's happening. And that brings great hope for those who would read this, who would see this picture with their eyes of faith. 
So we ask the question, where is the king? Maybe you remember those questions that Bill would ask to kind of catechize his kids. Where is the father? Where is the son? Where is the Holy Spirit? And this is along those lines. We ask the question, where is the king? And the circumstance in our lives, when we wonder where is the king, we open this and we see him standing, ruling from Mount Zion. And with him, the 144,000 that we'll find in just a moment are all those who are his, the redeemed that are his. So in real time, this is a truth that we need to get a hold of, whether it's perceptible to us or not. I want to see this picture. Where is the king? He is standing. He is ruling from Mount Zion, from his heavenly throne. The next we see that he sees that, and what does he hear? He hears lots of things. He hears thunder. He hears loud roaring of water. He hears harps that are being played. He hears voices singing in in the, the style of this book. They're all kind of blended together and they're kind of woven together to get this kind of experience of power and beauty and majesty that he hears and he sees. And he, but the final thing he hears are voices and he hears a song of the redeemed for those who are this 144,000. And before we get there and ask the question, what does he hear and what does it mean? What are the implications of this 144,000? There's two questions we need to answer. We do it shortly. There's much that can be read on this. But first of all, what's the 144,000 all about? And then secondly, what's it mean that they're marked on their forehead with the name of the Lamb and of the Father? What's the 144,000 all about? And then what's the significance of the name on their forehead And then we can look and understand more what's happening here. First, the 144,000, as you read through the book, you find them. They show up back in chapter 7 as well. And it's a picture, I believe, that we need to see this number as a symbolic number. Not just fixed, literal 144,000. But in chapter 7, we have some imagery of of Israel of 12 tribes and 12,000 of each tribe of Israel. And they're sealed Okay, which means that they are protected by God and they are his. So there's imagery from Israel that's being used. But in the very next section, there's an innumerable number that's being depicted in that section. And so this is the same imagery that's being used. And it's, we don't want to just end with some sort of select group of people here. But the symbolic nature of the number, believe that it is a number of completion. It's a number that shows that... Everyone is included, all of the redeemed, not one is missing. All those who have been sealed are there, are present here in this point in time. It's a number of completeness that all who are God's, all who have his name written on their forehead, are present and accounted for in eternity. And so that's this number. It's a symbolic. It's a picture of all of God's true people throughout all of the ages. A variety of different opinions on that. You can read more. I can tell you where to read. But I think that's the best way to understand this passage in that way. But then the the second question is, what's the significance of the name written on their forehead? This 144,000 had the name of of the Lamb of the Father written on their foreheads. It's an interesting kind of idea, right? But if you put your name on something, what's that mean? It means you possess it. It means that it's yours. If you wear a T-shirt that says KU, 
Where's Dave Hub Church here or Alabama or something like that? What's that mean? It means that you're in their camp, right? That, that you're identified somehow with them. Well, the name that's written on the forehead of these 144,000 is the name of the Lamb. It's the name of God himself. That he, that they are his, that their identity is connected and tied to him inseparably. And so the, the name, to have this name written on, on their forehead is to mark them as, as his possession. And to understand also the same name or this label, if you were to go back just a few verses in chapter 13, we have there the imagery of the mark of the beast. And if you were to look at that, you would see that there's this, the false prophet who convinces people, he deceives them to take the mark. And it says the number is 666 and 6. And of course, you have to kind of work through all that, exactly what it means. But it's not, again, a physical, literal mark. It's more of a, an image that's placed upon a person. And what Satan has done is he is a counterfeiter. He has counterfeited the mark and the name of God upon his people, and Satan has done the exact same thing. There's a counterfeit name, a counterfeit mark, showing that he owns, that they're his possession, that they're under his authority, they're governed by him. And so these two marks set parallel and antithetical with each other. One identifies people, those who have fallen under the system of Satan and following his ideals, his values, the thing he loves, the thing he wants to lead in. Those who have the mark and the name of God placed upon them, identify them with him, his possession, his protection, under his authority, submitting to him alone, living by his values, the thing that he loves, things that he calls us to go after. And it tells us something about all of humanity. That is maybe one of the most profound things that Revelation gets us and that is that every person fits into one category or the other. That every person, all humanity, will be marked by one or the other, either by the beast, by Satan himself, or by God, with his name written on their forehead. And it's a reality. And even though in this day and age, as we look out through our eyes, it's, it's ambiguous. We're not sure exactly how to see that. But from heaven, there's no ambiguity. It's clear those who are God's and those who are his. And so we live in the here and now, sharing the gospel, helping people understand and hear this message so that they too will find themselves to be a part of this number of the redeemed, ever-expanding work of God in their lives. And so the name of the Father, the name of the land upon us, means that we are his possession, sealed by his protection. And that's what this means. So that all of the redeemed, standing in eternity, with the Lamb ruling at Mount Zion with his mark, his name written upon them. But what are they doing? What is it that he hears? Ultimately, what John hears is a song that comes out of the water and the thunder and the harps. He hears a song that's being sung by this group of people, this group that's identified and designated as this 144,000, which is the whole of the redeemed singing a song. And it says it's a new song. And for us, as we look at this, we ask the question, what do we do with this? We can see that this song is somehow identifying who they are. And for those who are the redeemed, those who are his, knowing and loving this song is the quintessential characteristic of God's people. To know the song of the gospel and to sing it and to love to sing it is the essential characteristic of God's people. It's the song of the people, the song and the people are bound up together. It defines them and expresses who they are. And for us to learn and to love and to sing that song identifies us as his. 
in a different way than our small group that morning saying, take me home country roads, identified us as Americans. So we see these sounds. They were singing. What's the song that they're singing? How do we get our hands around it? It is the gospel. John tells us that they're singing a song in the presence before the throne. So God is present. The four living creatures and the elders are there. And they're singing a new song. What does it mean that it's a new song? Did it mean it just hit the charts or it just came out on iTunes or, or whatever? Well, the new song, again, we know the word from the rest of Scripture isn't just chronological in time. It's not just new in terms of just showed up. It's new in terms of an expression of God's work. That throughout the book of Revelation, that term is used. People receive a new name earlier on in the letters. of. There's a new song that's sung in chapter 5. There's a new heavens and a new earth that are to come. And in this case, it's a new song that is connected to the work of God that's being expressed and that's being seen here. In the Old Testament, we sang, or we are called to worship in Psalm 96, had us sing a new song. And for them to sing a new song was a new expression of God's deliverance, of his justice on his enemies and his deliverance of his people at the same time. And so when you would sing a new song, it was a new expression of God and his ability to save his people. And you would sing it, you would sing it in praise because he revealed himself again in his act. And here we have a new song of God revealing himself in his act through Christ, through the lamb who laid his life down. And so that's the new song that's connected to the gospel. It's a new song of praise and worship. In chapter 5, if you'll turn with me real quick over there, this new song at the, in, the, in the throne room scene, we see the, the lamb is there as he sings this song. As the, those around at, at his actions, his redeeming actions, verse 6 of chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then he had and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And at this, at the work of Christ, as he takes the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne and he begins to, un to break the seals, they sing a new song. This is a display, an expression of what he is about to do, what he is doing. And the song is this, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is the new song that's sung there. It's a new song that's been sung by the 144,000. It's a song of the gospel. It's a song of the work of Christ. It's a song of the redeemed who have personally and corporately experienced his salvation, his rescue work in their lives. Now John goes on as he says and he sees this scene, he hears it. He goes on to say that no one could learn that song. No one could learn that ransom song except the 144,000 who have been ransomed. There's only certain ones who can know that song. And it's those who they themselves have been redeemed. And the question is why? Why is it that only certain ones, for those of us standing here today, that we, we hear it and we, our heart resonates with that? Why is that? It's not because of 
something innately or inherently a part or of us. It's a part of something that God has done upon us. You see, the, the mark on the forehead isn't just, it's not just about identification as that. It also suggests that there's something been transformed in our minds that are selfish and warped and broken and fallen minds have been transformed. The way we think, the way we see, the way we look at the world around us, the way the things we love, the things we value has been transformed to take on the values of God. Whereas being under the ownership of the beast provides only darkness and callousness and selfishness and more brokenness and ultimately destruction. The mind that now has been marked by God has been illumined and opened to see the greatness of salvation, what he has done. They can't see because the minds haven't been transformed. There's also, it's not just that the rest don't enjoy it. There's a repulsion that's there. They don't, they hate the song of the lamb. It's, they're repulsed by it. But then also we understand that this is a result of something that's been done to us, that this, these ones who have been redeemed from the earth represents an action that's done upon us. It's not something we have done. It's something that he has done to us, that he stepped into our lives, transformed our minds so we can think and see his thoughts to realize our sin, to realize our, realize our need for his salvation, his forgiveness, to see the need for the blood to be spilled for us to be able to take that on and to receive that and to accept that. So he imprints his name upon our minds and he gives us this song to sing. This is the song of the gospel. It's the song of the whole redeemed that they sing. And it's not that they in this picture are made to sing it. It's not that they are forced or compelled to sing it externally, but rather it's a song that comes most naturally to their lips. And especially standing on the other side of eternity, standing there after realizing what they've been rescued from and what they've been rescued to, the redeemed recognize, indeed, this is the song. This is the only song to be sung because of what God has done in my life, because he has rescued me. Indeed, my identity and who I am is bound up with this song, and the identity of the redeemed is tied, and their joy and delight is inseparably connected to singing the song. And the question for us today, as we look at that picture, that image of those redeemed who are singing, is like, do we know the song? Do we know the song? Do we delight in it? Do we enjoy to sing it? And of course, a part of it is connected with understanding what's been done in our lives. If you don't, we need, again, this is a work. It's not something we can produce. It's something he must do in us. So we see our sin to confess it before him, to receive him and what he has provided for us and to trust ultimately in him as the one who forgives sin. But as we look and live in this day and age where our, if you will, our, our, our love for this song continues to change, I look at my life over the years and I can say for a fact that, that it shifts day in and day out, the love and enjoyment of, of this song of the gospel, my understanding of my need for it and delight in what God has done for me or my entrusting myself to him comes and goes. It's a part of our experience here, but it also needs to remind us about that something about the nature of the gospel. Jack Miller was a PCA pastor. He's no longer living, but he was a pastor and as a, as a Presbyterian minister for a long time would say that lived without a real appreciation of the gospel. He could say it, he recounted it with his words, 
but he found that, that it didn't resonate. And even though he would say he was a believer, what he found and came to understand is that the gospel is more than just words. It's more than just content, though it is that. He went on to say that the gospel is historical reality, but it's set to music. That the gospel is a song to be sung with lyrics and music. And so oftentimes we just get stuck with the content over the course of time and getting the content right, which is important and good, but we miss the song. We miss the music, that what we have been saved from and what we've been saved to. Paul asked the question to the Galatians is, what has become of your joy? And so when we separate somehow the words and the music and we don't allow or this gospel is somehow separated from really thrilling our soul, we, don't, we are not understanding it in its completion. Does it thrill us? Do we come to understand what is true about what God has done for us? And so that's why we have to have these pictures to look at and see what he has done for us. The picture of being transitioned from being under the control, having the mark of the beast and being under his control to being transferred into his kingdom with his mark, being his possession, from moving from being a beast to being fully human, from being transitioned from being enslaved to sin to being freed to follow God, to find life, eternal life that's there. From Babylon to Jerusalem, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves, from slavery to sonship, from being a slave to being a son and being a daughter. Do we know this song? Do we know how to sing it? Do we gather when we gather? Do we encourage each other? Do we rehearse this song with each other? That's what we need to do. We come and we read and we see the story. We say, John, what did you see? The king standing on Mount Zion. What did you hear? The song of the redeemed singing this great song of the gospel. That's what we're doing. We're looking to the king. We're looking and singing with our words and asking God to take our hearts and to match them with our words. So we do that internally, but at the same time, we need to take this gospel, the same song beyond us to those who need to hear the song. And a part of the proclamation of the victory song is to others so they would hear of what they need to hear, what God's rescue work on their behalf. And to trust that God would be at work in their hearts to transform them, to be able to hear this truth as well. A number of years ago when I was on staff with Crusade, um, our, our director, the leader of our campus ministry, had a statement, had a critique of our own ministry, and evangelistic ministry. And he said this, and I still remember, and it still echoes in my ears because I, I still struggle with the same thing. He says, I'm afraid that our ministry has become more evangelistic about everything else than the gospel. That our ministry, that we are more excited and more fervent and more evangelistic, proclaim more everything else, other messages, with the exception of the gospel. I'm afraid in my own life I see how I can become so excited about other things and I miss the very defining aspect of who I am and who we are and the message that we carry with us that is there. And so God calls us as this song identifies us internally. It also should and will identify us externally to those outside, those who will in the ever-increasing number come to know Christ. So the question for us, do we know the song? Does it thrill our souls? Are we growing in that? If there's a coldness, what do we do? Lord, will you take and replace that coldness with something that's real and genuine? John writes, 
He says, I want you to see this. I want you to see the king standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. He said, I want you to hear these voices. Hear the sounds with power and majesty and beauty, the voices of all of the redeemed throughout all the ages, standing with him as he rules and as he reigns. And this is the picture that we need to see again today. It's a picture that they needed to hear, a picture they needed to see. And the beauty of this picture, the 144,000, that represent all the redeemed. You see, that's us. That's us as we look down the line and we say, yes, we will be standing there. That a part of this name on our forehead says, yes, we are his. He will protect us. He will make us his. And even in the midst of the struggling now to sing the song, to live as we wait, as this future picture comes into view, we hope and we trust that this king is sufficient, that he's large enough and strong enough that his salvation work in the past will continue in the present and will be fulfilled and completed in the future. And that as our identity and our ownership is tied to him, our destiny will be tied and bound up with him as well. And our eternity will be spent singing the song of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you to help us sing. Perhaps there's some here who don't know this song. Father, would you teach them? Would you teach all of us, continue to reveal and open our eyes to what you've done? It's not just emotion, we know that, but we believe that there is this thrilling of our souls as we see what you've done that you will accomplish in us. And I pray, Father, for each one, that you would help us to fix our eyes and see where the king is and help us to, to know and learn and love to sing this song till on our lips at death it would be the song we would sing as we're transitioned into eternity and singing it there father there's many needs that we have and so we look to you you have conquered your enemies and in the process of doing that and we struggle in the here and now with brokenness and loss of loved ones i pray father for mark craig and i pray that you would be um, uh, with him at the loss of his father from madeline van and her mom and her illness, Mary Webb, I see her with her brother-in-law, continued to be with him as he um, is treated for this brain tumor. Father, for I think of, of moms and wives and single women and our families that are here today, and I pray that, that, that you would bless each one, you would bless moms and bless our homes and for single moms as well, that you would bring strength there, that our, our, our homes and our families would be informed by the truth of your reign and your rule over us in this gospel. Father, send us out with a people, with a message. Continue to mark us in the way we think, in the way we live, in the things we love, and the things we hate. Equip us as your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand for the benediction would uh, tell you also the, that if you would like to pray, pray with one of our elders. There'll be elders down here in front, so I encourage you to take advantage of that just for particular needs that you might have. Uh, God, uh, again, remind us of what's true and ask you to, that we receive the benediction that he's given to us. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen.
glorious cause, O oh God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done so that everyone might know your name. Let your soul be heard everywhere on earth till your kingdom come give us your strength oh God and courage to speak perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak Lord use us as you want whatever the test by grace we'll preach your gospel till our dying breath. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere. Till your sovereign work on earth is done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. So that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth. Till your your kingdom come you are dismissed